You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. It says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that was given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. It's the name that everybody in the Old Testament that was in tune with God and understood God, that had some semblance of relationship with him, it was that person that they looked forward to. Moses looked forward to Jesus. Jacob looked forward to Jesus. Isaiah looked forward to Jesus. Nehemiah looked forward to Jesus. They knew that there was one coming, a Messiah, that would come and would change the scope of relationship with with Almighty God in such a form that that it would change all of history and all of eternity. At the name of Jesus, it's true, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And it really won't matter whether you believe that or not. Because when you stand in the presence of Almighty God, there will come a realization that if you believed in Him and trusted Him for your salvation, that as you stand before Him, you know that He is just worthy to bow before you. But there will also be a group of folks that said, I want nothing to do with God, and I want to push Him away for all of my life, when they get to that spot, they'll realize that they were dead wrong. Dead for eternity wrong. Because it's at the name of Jesus that people are saved. It's in the name of Jesus that we trust God and we realize that what he did on Calvary was for us. That he intentionally shed his blood so that we could have eternal life. And that's worth shouting about. Uh, maybe that's even worth church clapping about. Right? It's interesting how when we don't we don't put the emphasis on Jesus in everyday stuff, everyday life, that things get lost. It may be our focus, it may be our direction, but it gets lost when we take Jesus out of the picture. And things get skewed, distorted. You've looked through glass that had a film or something on it, and you realize when you went to look through it that you couldn't see what was on the other other side very well. And when we step away from Jesus, it's like that. Things get distorted and messed up. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 5, and that's where we're going to be today, was one of those guys who was trying to clear up the glass. He was taking the uh, maybe spiritual kind of windex to a nation and helping them to understand not just who God was, but what God needed to be in their lives. So Nehemiah was this guy, and he's the primary, in some ways, the primary focus of this book. He writes this book, and he says, that he was cupbearer to a king in a foreign land. 
And then the king allowed him to come back to the Jerusalem area to rebuild the wall. And so Nehemiah, before a cupbearer, is a prayer. He's one that goes before God, gets on his knees, and says, God, what do you want me to do? And then he's obedient to whatever God asks him to do. And God asks him to go rebuild the wall. Go back and rally the troops to rebuild the wall. So he returns, sees the rubble, the broken gates, and begins to formulate a plan for putting them back in order. And it wasn't just so they could have protection. It was so that they would start to realize realize their relationship to Almighty God. It was one of those things where it was a refocus on the nation to understand what the law was so that the law could lead them to the gospel. That was the idea of the law anyways. It was the tutor to lead us to Christ. And so Nehemiah says, okay, we've got to do this. If we're going to get here, there's some things that we have to do along the way. And Nehemiah understood importance of the law and the gates. So we get to, to chapter 5 and we have this story and it's a little bit of a departure from just the story of rebuilding and putting things together and, and opposition. It's a little bit different than that. So far, I know that we've studied a couple of things. We've learned this. We've learned that God is a provider for his people. That prayer is essential to the ongoing work of Lord. Gotta pray. It's not that God doesn't know what we want or know what we need. It's that He wants us to come before Him in dependence of, of Him. To realize that we have a great need in our life. So prayer is essential. And then, it, then we learn that we have to be diligent when it comes to enduring the enemy's attacks. Satan will attack anytime he can and anywhere he anywhere he can. He doesn't play fair. He just doesn't. He wants to steal away the glory that is to God Almighty. So Satan, we have to watch out for him. The most, we also learned that the most effective impact of his people, the Lord's people, is through inclusion. And I'm not talking about just bringing a whole bunch of folks in to be all messed up as a church and not having direction. That's not the kind of inclusion I mean. Kind of inclusion I'm talking about here is that everybody that is part of the body of Christ needs to do what they're called to do. And when the body does not function properly, things don't work. Now, let me, let me tell you how this works. When body parts don't cooperate, you can't do the church clap dance thing. Proof. <laughs> I could not get my hands and my legs and my knees and all those things to work together. But in the body of Christ, every single piece is important to accomplishing what God wants to do. And when pieces are missing, when, when there is a, a group of folks that just say, I don't want to do that, then the body cannot function the way it's supposed to. So I want you to hear me real clear this morning that it takes everybody. The effectual impact of everybody being part is important to God's work from this corner. It is the only way that the community around us will be changed. For if the body is compromised, how in the world do those outside the body react to a body that's injured or impaired? 
when your body doesn't work right, and people notice it, what happens? They don't give you tasks. If my eyes don't work, you don't hand me a hammer and say, go nail that. It's not good. It's not good for the wood, it's not good for my thumb. Because I can't see the body, part of the body is not working. It takes every part of the body to work and to be effective. And then the last thing is God works to refine his people for his glory. We're not a done people. On Thanksgiving, I cook a turkey. I check to see if it's done. Because if it's not done, we are not eating. God wants to refine us till we're done. Not that we're cooked, but we're done. We're mature. God works on us, and sometimes that is a hurtful process because we don't like when God takes something and hurts us to accomplish what He wants to do. Right? It may be a sickness, it may be some, some circumstance in your life that God brings in to refine you. Um, how many, and I'm going to ask this, I know this is a dangerous question for a Sunday morning, but I'm going to ask the guys. This is where you have to be vulnerable, a little honest, and realize that you may get elbowed. If you're sitting next to your wife, you can get elbowed. How many of you guys would, would say, my wife is a refining piece of my life. She refines me. No, that is good. You know, there, she can please. No, sometimes it hurts. I don't always have patience with them. It's why that we want more space between our house and another house than two feet. We have, you can call what you want. We can call them. There are arguments. We can have a sanctified conversation. Moments of intense fellowship, whatever that is. We, we need some separation from our neighbors, and that doesn't necessarily guarantee anything. Because we can have some intense moments. And, and I don't need my neighbor to go, you guys need counseling. God is at work refining us. And he uses people, he uses circumstances to do that. And that's what he's doing with the nation of Israel. He's taking them and refining them and working on them so that they not only understand holiness, but they understand dependence on him. When I first went into ministry, and this is how it worked in our house with, with Deb in this refining process. When I first went into ministry, the pastor at my first church pulled me aside and he said, look, here's your work group. It is this day through this day. It includes these days, and Thursday is your day off. I do not want to see you in this office or around here or see you doing things on a regular basis on Thursdays. Thursdays was my day off. I took Thursdays because Friday had football games and, and weekend things, and it just wasn't practical. My Fridays would get messed up on a regular basis, so I took Thursdays. Did that for 30 years. He gave me great advice because, I, because he realized that in ministry, you're kind of on call all the time, but if you don't step away from that and set some boundaries, you will lose your ministry, lose your marriage, lose your family. Then you will be no good for ministry. It won't matter whether you're available 24-7. 
You won't be able to do it because you won't have a leg or a foundation to stand on when someone comes to you with some issue. Well, how's your marriage? My marriage stinks because I'm doing ministry all the time. Can I get some advice? One for me is I'm not doing it well. And so they put some boundaries around me. He said, this is what you need to do. This is what you don't need to do. And essentially, he was telling me, don't cheat. Stay focused on what God says and priorities and don't cheat. And truthfully, we cheat, don't we? And you may not think of it like that, but we choose to cheat. And it may not be in the cheating sense like I'm going out on my wife, I'm going out on my husband kind of cheating kind of thing. What I'm saying is we cheat. We are putting something else in the place where God ought to be. We exchange. It's an exchange of ideas. It's an exchange of attitudes. It's an exchange of action. We call that cheating because what we're doing is we're stealing from God and putting what is due him somewhere else. And so for, for us, early in ministry, Deb would remind me, don't cheat. And she wouldn't say it like that. She'd say, have you spent any time with the kids lately? Or I think maybe you need to take a day this week and go hang out with the kids or, or hang out with me, take another day or whatever that happened to be. And she would remind me, don't cheat. And we have to be reminded not to cheat. Because we, it's not an intentional thing for us. We don't say, hey, I'm really planning on messing up this other part of my life so I can do this. But we do that. It's an unintentional drift away from God. We cheat God. And then we have to figure out how to reverse the process. The nation of Israel had cheated God. They walked away from his law. God brought this refining exile into their lives and this city that was torn up around them and said, I'm going to refine you. And they are trying to figure out how to get back to following God. With a passion that, that was part of their, their whole livelihood as a nation before them. There are two messages in Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to get to peek in on these kind of behind the scenes of some interpersonal relationships within the nation. So it's not just, it's not external stuff pushing in, it's within the body. And so we're going to look at that as they continue to try and rebuild the wall. And so the first thing I want us to understand this morning is the message of redemption. The message of redemption. In verses 1 through 8, we have this, this outcry that takes place. And so here's, here's the way it was. It says in verse 1, of chapter 5, Nehemiah says, Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So, verse 1, they're in the middle of rebuilding the wall, and we have this outcry, this complaint that is taking place. And so this complaint arose, and there, there are essentially three parts to this. They want to eat and live, in verse 2. Therefore, let us get, get grain that we may eat and live. It was famine times. So they needed food. We need food. Like he mentioned it this morning, we'll be ready to leave and go get food at the end of this hour or before. If I keep talking about food and hamburgers and hot dogs and 
chicken and all that kind of stuff, your stomach will start to growl because you have this need. That's the way it works. And so they had this need. We need grain that we may eat and live. And then the second part, in verse 4, it says, There were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. So they had borrowed money, they had gone into debt and became slave, as Dave Ramsey puts it, puts it, slave to the lender that gone into debt to fulfill a promise or a requirement. Who would think it would be really dumb to borrow money to pay the IRS? And sometimes it happens. If we get to the place where that, that tax is greater than what we have, we have to go to that spot and borrow money so we can pay them because we don't want to be in trouble with them. Sometimes that happens in, in folks' lives. And that was happening here. They had to borrow money so they could pay the tax. And then it went another step further. In verse 5, it says, Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers and children, like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. So what they had owned, they no longer owned because of the, the forced debt on them. And then, in addition, they were selling their sons and their daughters off to take care of the debt. It wasn't like a trafficking thing. It was more like we're giving them to you to help pay off this debt. And they were earning money to get rid of the debt that they owed. And so you have all this happening. Realize this is within the body, within the nation. This is taking place. So their outcry reaches the ears of Nehemiah. And, and he says in verse 6, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. See, redemption is one of those things that takes place when some payment is made to get something out of it. And what Nehemiah is realizing here is there was already a debt paid to redeem these people out of exile and bring them back to the nation, and it's un unheard of that they should go back into debt and need to be redeemed again. They don't need to be in that spot. They need to be free to live as God's people. Galatians is one of those places where Paul called that out. They were being brought under the bondage of law again instead of enjoying the free grace available through Jesus Christ. And so Nehemiah is making this case. And it's not that everybody in the nation had to be equal. You know, when I say equal, or have equal assets. Equality of assets is not a biblical mandate. Some will have wealth and some will not. And I think the people that have wealth, they have wealth because and we can look at this, at least within the body of Christ, those that have wealth are able to steward what God gives them. And sometimes God withholds wealth because you can't handle it. If I had a million dollars, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably blow it on stupid things. And I'm not sure I can handle that. So God has not graced me with a million dollars. Now, if he's figured it out between now and next week, then... You good? Can you handle it? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Quality of assets is not a biblical mandate. 
God is working on our heart. He's working on our stewardship. He's refining us. He's refining us to be the people of God. He's making it a matter of maturity, not entitlement. So when God works in our life, we have to not just reconcile the fact that he's at work, but, but say, God, thank you for whatever you're giving me that's refining me and making me more like Christ. Redemption for us is God working through us in that process of not just being saved, but being refined. So it's a matter of redemption. We see that in Nehemiah 5. It says in verse 7, I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, so basically he says, I went into a room and I prayed and I thought. So then I went to the nobles and the rulers and said, you're exactly usury, each from his brother, therefore I held a great assembly against them. Basically, he calls them out. He not just calls them out privately, but he calls them out publicly. He says, you're not acting correct. You're not acting right. Uh, if you were in Sunday school this morning, or small groups, or connect groups this morning, and you were in a Bible study, you talked about a little bit of this. You talked about slavery. You talked about somebody who was dealing with a runaway slave that, that wanted a country to treat them well as a brother in Christ, right? And, and Nehemiah is doing the same argument in this passage. So you need to treat your brothers well. And he's going to call them out. In Leviticus 25, 35 through 38, this is what it says, and this is what Nehemiah is bringing to mind for them. It says, now in the case a countryman of yours becomes poor and his means with regard to you falter, then you are to sustain him. I put him under a burden and sustain him. Like a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with you. Do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God. And check that out for just a second. Don't take that from him. Don't push a burden on him. But first, revere your God. Understand where your real allegiance lies or where your real accountability is. It's to God. It's not to that person. So revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. You shall not give him your silver and interest nor your food for gain. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So what God says, I provided you everything that there is. There is no reason for you to make those of your brothers subject to you. Quit exacting interest on them that is uncalled for. They've been redeemed, they've been bought, we've been redeemed, and we've been bought. We need to understand that we live in redemption. 1 Peter 1, 17-19 says this, and it backs up what Paul said to the Galatian church. It says, if you address as father the one who partially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers. So you weren't bought as were the, as were the brothers back in Nehemiah's day. Says, Peter says, 
but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Understand where real redemption comes from. We get to enjoy that. The result of redemption is freedom. The result of redemption is freedom. And then in Nehemiah 5, 8 through 11, Nehemiah kind of calls out. These are hidden verses in this passage. And they reveal an honest assessment of the situation. And Nehemiah doesn't pull any punches at this point. He says, this is the truth. This is what's going on. And then he gives a, gives a practical accounting for what ought to happen. So here's what's happening. This is what ought to happen. So he says this. I said to them, we according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold into the nations, were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and they could not find a word to say. They knew they were guilty. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? He's reminding them that what got them in trouble, what got the nation in exile, was they walked away from fearing God. He's saying, oh, so you want to do this again, right? Walk in fear of our God. It says, because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies. And likewise, I, my brothers, and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please leave us, leave off this usury, or let it go. Just let it go. And then in verse 11, it says, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also, the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine, and the oil that you are exacting from. Give back what is theirs and allow them to enjoy the freedom that is found in redemption. Allow them to be brothers and sisters in the body of Christ doing what is supposed to happen. The second thing I want us to see, well, let me, let me go back. So for us, we have to fear God and realize that the message that we share has to be consistent with our relationship. What people see has to be consistent. Nehemiah's assessment required response. And this is for us. You cannot sit on the fence. Can't be a people that that say redemption is not important, and on another hand, say redemption is. We've got to be people sold out to Christ. The world is waiting for people sold out to. Because they don't see it, it becomes an excuse. Second thing for us is the message of coherence or unity in verse 12 and 13. After hearing the accusation, they decide to heed Nehemiah's counsel. It says, Then they said, We will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you said. And so he called the priests and took an oath. From them that they would do that of everybody that they would do according to the promise. So all the sides got together and said, We will do this. No longer will we go against God's word. We will change the way we do business. 
And so they make recompense. They make amends by returning what they profit. Do you remember a story in the New Testament just kind of with that idea? I think it was a short guy. Climbed up in a tree. And when Jesus went to his house, remember what he said? He said, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, this is Luke 19, 8 through 10. I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is the son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus realized he had stepped out of what God wanted him to do. Nehemiah, the, those folks that were exacting usury on the nation. They stepped out of what God wanted them to do. How many times do we step out of what God wants us to do? And our job, our responsibility is to step back in. Say, God, I'm going to be totally committed to what you want. The coherence of the nation was at stake. The unity of the nation was at stake. And that unity and function of the body trumps personal perfection, personal preference. It has to. If God is in it, we ought to be all in. So the Jews needed to be a unified body. We have to be in a unified body. See, Jesus put a high price on it. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, he says, he says this about the whole idea of relationship. He makes this statement. He says, basically, you want to come and bring a sacrifice to the altar. But if someone has something against you, you need to go to them and ask forgiveness. Before you ever come and bring that sacrifice, you think that Displays the importance of relational pieces within the body of Christ. The interpersonal relationship within the body of Christ is so important to the effective work of the, of the body outside the walls of the church. Jesus put a high price on us together. And truthfully, sometimes we play the victim. We often play the victim more than we play the accuser. We'll say, we'll say things like, they're out to get me, but they don't want what I want. And so we play the victim. But that still is no excuse for the body of Christ not to be unified in this integration. We make issues about our wants instead of God's will. The church cannot function rightly if parts of the body are in rebellion to each other. It's going to require us to stop and repent. It's very simple. It's what happened in Nehemiah's day. It calls them out. They stop after hearing the reality assessment. And say we're willing to repent. Churches often project this unity to those around us. 
We need to be with the people that respond to the gospel. The result of coherence is impact. You realize how much greater an impact you'll have if we unify as a body of Christ. We have to be unified. It's not that everybody is going to agree about everything. There are things that I don't agree with. You know, maybe push up the shelf and get in a meeting, and, and there's a consensus among it. I may say, I may think that we may need to go a different direction. But I'm, I'm thinking that everybody else in the room is praying as well. And I could just be wrong. That is a possibility. But we have to be unified. We have to be a cohesive group of people willing to take the message of the gospel outside the walls of the church. It's that, and it's there where impact takes place. There's two principles about God I want us to catch before we get through this, because Nehemiah had to deal with this. Two principles. The first principle is God is not the oppressor but the liberator. God is not the oppressor, but the liberator. Remember, he's the one that brought us to Christ. But we did not do this on our own. We didn't have a relationship with Almighty God on our own. And Jesus Christ provided that for us through the cross. So he doesn't bring oppression. He brings liberation. Luke 4, 17-21, Jesus is in the synagogue, and he opened the book, found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So far, so good. No waves to this point. So he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Words that pulled the rug out from underneath those who were in his presence. But he was the liberator, not the oppressor. It wasn't that God, and sometimes we have this feeling that God presses on us and is oppressing us, but God is refining us. He is not the oppressor. He is refining us and pushing on us so that our faith will become greater and our dependence will be deeper. And then out of that comes freedom to follow him with all that we are. With a true dependence on God that can provide everything. That's the first thing. God is not the oppressor but the liberator. The second thing is that God is not the opposition, but your advocate. God is not the opposition, but your advocate. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And it says, He will rejoice over you with gladness, He will quiet you by His love, and He will exalt over you with loud singing. The God that I know Rejoices over me that I have a relationship with him. And he declares over you 
that he loved you with that, that love that allowed Jesus to go to the cross on your behalf. He is not the opposition, but he is your advocate. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 talks about us being a royal priesthood and a chosen people. Those that have been chosen by God and lifted up Ephesians 2.10, which was a centric in verse, and if you saw the pictures this week, you saw it written on the steps going up to their logic, says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so that we would walk in them. God is your advocate, not your opposition. And so when God does that refining work in our life and says, it is time for you to take a reality check and an assessment and stop and repent. Understand that when God asks you to do that, it's not because he wants to bring harm to you. He wants to do good in your life. He wants it to be a life that brings glory to him and honors him and matures you for eternity. So the question for us this morning are we living like we've been redeemed? Are we living in freedom? Living out the gospel? Romans 10, 9 through 11 says this. It says that if you confess, that, yeah, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with what? The heart, the person, Believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And then verse 11 is in there, and we don't want to miss this. It says, For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Whoever trusts him will not be disappointed. You say, Well, I don't know if God's got my best interest in mind. He's your liberator and your advocate, he does have your best interest in mind. But what keeps people from coming to the altar and stopping and repenting, whether it's to come to him in salvation for Christ or staying in the pew after coming to Christ and not coming front to the front and repenting, is pride. I don't want other people to think badly of me. I don't want other people to know that there may be something going on in my life. Everybody in this room has something going on. If you come forward, you're just you're stepping over here, but it's not because nobody else needs to do it. God wants what's best for us, and we have to become very honest with him and say, God, what do you want in my life? Where do you want me to be? And how are you refining me so that I can be a people, part of a people, set apart to do his work? Have you been redeemed and do you live as if you're redeemed? And the second other, the next question, are you living as one who values biblical unity as a witness to the world or your marketplace? Are you living as one who values biblical unity? And maybe another way to put this is how many in your marketplace, we say marketplace because it just encompasses a lot of things, could be where you work, where you go to school, all those different places. In your marketplace, 
you, do those around you have a high view of God, or do you have a high view of God and it is projected to others? Or what do people around you think of your church? Am I living in such a way that people would understand that I belong to a church that wants to glorify me? So we have to come to a place where we assess these things. We evaluate. But the evaluation starts inside. It, it comes with somebody coming alongside, whether kind of like Devin did me, but let the Holy Spirit work on us and say, this is what needs to be worked on. Nathan came to David, Nehemiah came to the nobles and the rulers. Jesus came to Zacchaeus. Will we be obedient? Or will we just sit back and it be just normal? Church is not called to be normal. Normal dies. And it doesn't take any effort at all to going to happen for you, it's going to happen for me. There's nothing you can do about it. You want to prolong life? It's still going to happen. But for God's will to go forth in power and truth, it's the way to our life. We desire that passion that seeks after Him with all that we are. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's the first thing. Everything else has to happen. Seek you all the time. And this is what happens. If our, if our relationship with God reflects His love for us, we will be attracted to those that want love. We live in a world that wants love and we seek in all kinds of different places, but we will be attracted. We will also be attracted to those that want to learn how to love as Jesus did. You love on somebody today at lunch. They can be the stinkiest waiter in the world. You go to a restaurant and you've got one that can't seem to serve a glass of water correctly, you tip them well. You may get a chance to tell them why you're tipping them well, but tip them well. Don't let them walk away from that experience saying, well, they're church folks, they never tip. Well, they used to tip so poorly because they've been to church to give all their money to church. I'm not telling you not to give here, okay? Please understand that. There's a responsibility in that. But don't let anybody working your lunch table today be offended in their relationship with God or in any connection to God because you didn't act like you were supposed to. Let them see Jesus through you. So if we live out the gospel, we reflect the Son, people will want to know that love. The second thing is we what will happen is we will have the privilege of allowing others to see the influence of God in our lives when we live with integrity. We won't do the usual thing. Maybe just another way to put that, we would be people of character that the world would notice. They would notice not because we're just doing our job, but we're doing it above and beyond. You know, if it's student work, it's stuff at school, you're going to club and beyond, whatever it happens to be. 
See, we, we as the body of Christ, can make an impact in our world. It's why we even have as part of our mission statement, our purpose statement, that we would develop authentic followers of Jesus Christ who would impact the world. It's not because we just threw that in because it sounded good. It's in there because it's a thing that can become reality if we are developing as authentic followers. And we are being biblical and following the biblical mandate of going and making disciples. It's a church. What's God saying to you? Now, man, stir. Maybe it's an uncomfortable feeling for you. It's okay. I'm not sure God's as much interested in our comfort as he is in our holiness and our maturity in Christ. So as God leads you this morning after we pray, he'll lead you to Whether it's to come to Christ, to begin a new life with Almighty God, a love relationship with him, or just refresh that relationship. Stop and repent. And say, God, I'm yours, whatever you want. Help me to be a vital part of the body of Christ together in the direction of glorification. Father, we thank you for your word. The challenge of following you, to be refined by you. God, I pray that as we continue in our time this morning, God, that you, as you speak, that our ears and our heart would be attentive. That we wouldn't push back on you. But we would do just like those nobles and those rulers did for Nehemiah. They would say in front, take an oath before the people, we won't do this anymore. God, we see Nehemiah's testimony in the rest of that chapter. And I think he's sharing that not so he can lift himself up, but he would serve as an example to those around him. And saying, I'm not asking them to do anything I won't do. And so God, I pray that you would help us to be the people of God that you've called us to be. That we would be a diligent people, wanting to honor you with all the glory. We pray these things for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, that name. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service. If you have found this resource helpful, please do share it with others and check out our other ministries at ebcconnect.org.